The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. All right. Good morning, everybody. This is uh, good. Welcome to Good Morning New York. To my listeners around the world and in the United States, uh, I'm your host, Vince Rocco. We are coming to you live from Blastoff Productions as usual. We are going to talk to our roundtable of panel experts on our hot topics. Rachel and Phil are off today, but first let's get to the news. Uh, sadly, in overnight developments in Europe, there has been a coordinated attack at the airport and the metro system in Brussels, leaving 28 people dead and 151 people seriously wounded. Both Paris and the United Kingdom right now are on high alert. All this in response to the arrest the other day of the lead terrorist guy who led those vicious attacks in Paris last year. So the world right now is a little unstable, and we want to keep our fingers crossed. Anyway, moving on, New York's Plaza Hotel is set to go on sale in auction next month, according to Bloomberg News. David and Simon Rubin hold the mortgage on the five-star hotel and scheduled a foreclosure auction for April 26th, Bloomberg said, citing a source. For sale are the Plaza's hotel rooms, its restaurant, uh, and retail space. It's being sold in a package that includes the Dream Hotel downtown, uh, the news agency reported. The Plaza Hotel, of course, could not be reached for comment. Despite the record of a $100 million sale of a penthouse last year, the volume of sales at that level topped out two years ago at 55 transactions. In 2015, there were just 47 sales, according to City Realty, a real estate data and listing website. And with China's economy markedly slowed and prices for oil and other commodities falling, brokers and developers think the number could be even lower this year. That imbalance is one of a growing number of signs that New York may be facing a luxury glut. Prices for land, apartments, Madison Avenue storefronts, and hotel rooms, all of which have skyrocketed in recent years, may have finally gotten too high. Two years after closing on the penthouse of 1 Fifth Avenue, Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards and his wife model Patty Hansen have put that pad back on the market. They bought the place for $10.5 million in 2014 after it underwent a $4.5 million price drop. Unsatisfied by the pad, Richards and Hansen are now asking $12.23 million. Good luck with that one. The first design for the building was too industrial-looking. The second was too glassy, but the third was just right. At least that's how the design progressed for the seven-story condominium rising at the intersection of 7th Avenue and West 10th Street. The site for the building known as 175 West 10th Street is a small triangle that was created when 7th Avenue was extended on a diagonal south from Greenwich Avenue in 1919, slicing through the city blocks and leaving irregularly shaped lots on both sides. Because the site is in the Greenwich Village Historic District, the design required approval by the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission, but getting that go-ahead was not easy. Floor-through condominiums of about 2,700 square feet will occupy the second to fifth floors 
and a 2860 square foot duplex penthouse will have an upper level setback on the roof. I just passed that building the other day because I was downtown having brunch with somebody and I realized exactly where it was and I remembered it from my copy here. Uh, that I was going to talk about it this week, it literally is on 7th Avenue, and I can't even imagine wanting to spend the kind of money that <laughs> it's going to be called for here at 2,700 square feet you know, sizes. It's on 7th Avenue. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it almost cantilevers over 7th Avenue. It's extraordinary. It's absolutely amazing. Anyway, you got to find space where space is... Uh, is had. Few would dispute the notion that apartments have become over the top expensive for many New Yorkers, but just how uh, very far out of reach can still be surprising. The median price of a studio long considered an entry level apartment in Manhattan is now $485,000. This, according to the Cochrane Group, Consider that in the coveted submarket of downtown Manhattan, the median price of a resale condo studio hit $863,000 in the last quarter of 2015. But back to the buyer in the half-million-dollar bracket, what this will purchase in Manhattan is likely little more than a single single room with a window-less kitchen for $500,000 or less. Interesting. For those who absolutely must be in the city, the other boroughs are generally cheaper and the offerings roomier, but the trade-off for that extra square footage might be limited, uh, have limited shopping and dining options, and so-so schools and long commutes. In honor of Earth Day, cars will be banned from the portion of Broadway. Uh, from a portion of Broadway on April 22nd, I say yes to that. Vehicles won't be allowed on the stretch from the Flatiron Building, East 23rd Street, down to Union Square, East 17th Street. The New York Daily News reports City Council Member Yandes Rodriguez, who heads the Transportation Committee, pushed for the ban and is also pushing for citywide car. Free day, isn't that something? We should have that once a month. Love I like it. that city citywide car free day. Love it. That's nice. I don't walk, like that at all. We could walk hand yeah, you, you drive. Down that's the, we can, in the middle which of the is sweet, which is nice. But you know, if you're a broker and you are um, showing apartments down in the Flatiron area, and then you've got appointments on the Upper West Side, and then you really can't walk that. I mean, you could. No. But it's a time constraint. You know, it's a business day. If it's a weekend, I get that. You know what? I didn't I, I didn't even think about that because of course we're also Uber centric and, and and whatever when we have lots of, you know, back to back appointments with, with customers. So car free day might be a problem on that score. But you know yeah. what? So we'd mm-hmm. work around it. It's only one day a month. That's, That's what I true. say. That's we'll true. figure it out. We'll figure it out. <laughs> but it's our high season. It's our high season. <laughs> Getting higher. (laughs) Many middle-class homeowners in New York City miss out on an annual property tax of about $300, and time is running out to apply this year. The New York State School Tax Relief Program, or better known as STAR, exemption gives homeowners a tax break of about $300 per year and has helped thousands of New Yorkers keep home ownership within reach. In 2011, eligibility for the tax break was narrowed to people with incomes of less than $500,000. STAR is something that middle-class homeowners should know about. It is easy to apply for. And there is an even an enhanced STAR program that comes with an approximately $600 tax break. The deadline to apply was March 15th last week. So uh, it's a little too late, but please keep it in mind for the next time. Yes. <laughs> but this, the STAR is very interesting because if you live outside of Manhattan or if you live in a house or a condo, you have to apply for it yourself. Well, as you do in a co-op. Correct. But what's so interesting is many co-ops apply for it on behalf of everyone else and keep it. And put it in the reserve fund. And this is something... Is that allowed? Yes, because I forgot why, because I've asked about this. Wow, that's interesting. I've not heard that. I have asked, every time I have a co-op closing and representing the buyer, I say, 
before the closing, I want you and your attorney to ask how this building deals with the star deduction. Interesting. Mm. Wow. Okay, the New York Times took a look at overcrowding in the city, this is interesting, and found that it had gotten exponentially worse. According to the latest Census Bureau data, about 9% of all households or nearly 280,000 units in New York City have more than one person per room. That's a common government measure of crowding. A decade ago, the rate was 8%. The change represents nearly 13% increase. By comparison, the national crowding rate is 3.4%. The crowding problem in New York worsens considerably in specific neighborhoods, particularly those with large working class and immigrant populations where it is not unusual for two families to cram into apartments intended for one and laborers to sleep two to three or more to a room. Let's be sure not to tell that to Donald Trump. (laughs) Hillary Clinton is the first major presidential candidate of 2016 to unveil a detailed housing agenda. And among the proposals is one that the center has been working on closely with policymakers, helping working families to afford down payments on new homes. Clinton is proposing to support potential homeowners in their efforts to save on down payments with new initiatives for undeserved, underserved communities that would match up to $10,000 in savings. The programs would apply to those homeowners who earn less than the area median income. Since down payments are often the biggest obstacle to homeowners, this matching program would be a welcome addition to the extremely limited landscape of financial assistance currently available to low and moderate income New Yorkers seeking to become homeowners and to build wealth. And finally, Governor Andrew Cuomo has announced a new program where specifically trained testers will pose as renters and buyers to try and uncover discrimination in the real estate industry. The new program comes after the state settled 123 cases alleging housing discrimination in 2015. The settlements include discrimination against blacks, the disabled, and women. Cuomo went on radio last Tuesday to discuss the purpose of the new Fair Housing Enhancement Program, saying the fighting housing that fighting housing discrimination was an ongoing effort, and it doesn't seem to be getting any easier. Now, we know as real estate agents in our, in our business that uh, fair housing is very important, and the things that I just talked about here being settled by the state are because brokers, uh, in some cases, don't do the right thing. So we have to adhere to our fair housing, and sometimes it's a strain on our relationships with our clients because they ask us questions that we, we basically can't answer. So mm-hmm. it's a tough, uh, fine line to, to, to walk, but unfortunately, that's that's what governs. It is, but it's very serious because a uh, an acquaintance of mine got fired from one of the large company. Well, got fired from the Corcoran Group because they did the right thing mm-hmm. over a fair housing violation. Yeah. And she thought she was doing the right thing because it was a co op. But when she told me very proudly what she said, I was appalled. Wow! <laughs> I was really. You can't say that to people. You can't say that. Yeah, you have to really watch watch what you're saying. Be delicate. You know, people are going to ask you questions as an agent and try and you know pin you down. Um, you have to understand what the fair housing laws are, and then you know not answer them uh, accordingly. For example, who lives in this building? We we can't really answer that question. What type of people? Yeah, what type of people building? live oh, I have here? A great answer for you know, that, we should we should walk outside and we can hang out for the next couple hours, and you could see who walks in and out of the building. Right. That's an appropriate answer. But you know what's that's interesting? That's what I to, say, and I got yelled at for that. But really? you know what's interesting yeah, to me? Uh, that's am I am I wrong? Really? For that? No, I, think, I still say it. You got I yelled mean, at by well, whom? Say, for looking by by management of a company because. They're saying you really have to stress that it's a fair housing violation and people have to be aware of fair housing. And I said, it's only my job to educate people to a certain point. But sometimes, as you just said, Vince, you have a relationship with your buyers and you have to keep a relationship. So I actually agree with Niall that I tell people, you know, come here between five and seven at night and you'll see everyone coming home. You'll know who lives here. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, there, there are so many different ways to, to spin that, that answer. But, you know, it's interesting because I'm very in tune with it because I spent many years working on-site selling development buildings. And so I would see probably a lot more buyers than not. But here's the thing, you know, there are still agents out there, there are still brokers out there who say what they shouldn't say. I just had somebody a couple of weeks ago at an open house of mine came with a with a buyer and the buyer started asking all of these, you know, fair housing type questions and of course I give my standard, you know, answers. However, this agent just kept answering the questions and saying things that she should not say Ugh. and from a reputable firm and I just kind of looked at her with you know the eyes that I can give people sometimes I'm like, Are you out <laughs> he's of looking at me mind? right now I with love those, those eyes, eyes. <laughs> are you out of your mind and she just kept going and I thought well wow. you know what the best thing that I can do is just keep my mouth shut because I don't want to be tagged in this conversation so yeah. at the end of the day you know there are people who you know don't pay attention to this and who will get snagged because these testers are out there in new developments and have been for years, but now they're going to be all over the place and coming to your resale open houses and just kind of calling you also and pretending to be buyers. I had that happen to me once years ago. Someone called me to be a buyer. Turned out after two showings, this person was a tester, not intended to buy anything. And I kind of smelled it from day one, uh, fortunately for me. Wow. Anyway, but more on that in a second. This is nothing new because this is nothing new, but but people don't yeah. think before they they act or they don't they think don't, before no, they I meant, talk. I meant sending the testers because oh, yeah. no, before no, no, Cuomo no. was elected, and the state really financially was having major major problems, they start looking for all these ways to build up their funds. Absolutely, and that's when they started sending out testers again. They're always around. I think we've all had them. We we have, but I think, you know, being that the governor is now really focused on it, Lord knows. Anyway, we have to take a break. You're listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, we are back, and I'm talking to Niall Lundgren from Compass and Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential. Officially, good morning, everybody. Good morning. morning. 
So I wanted to just start by saying this weather is kind of cuckoo in this town this winter, but most especially the last couple of weeks. And the reason I bring up weather is because it affects our business, you know, whether it's open house, whether it's people wanting to make appointments during the week to go out and see things, whether it's, you know, torrential rain or snowstorm, you can understand that. But when it goes from 50 degrees to 70 degrees to 28 degrees or even lower in a span of seven to 10 days, it's like, what is going on in the world, in, in the world of New York City? And I'm wondering if that's kind of causing the, the slower real estate market at the moment here in town. I haven't put my finger on it, but it's something that I really kind of think about because it does affect our business, especially open house Sundays. You know, now that you mention it, <laughs> I haven't thought about it because I've always believed that no matter what the weather, no matter what's going on, serious buyers who really need or want to buy will be out there. Yep. But it's been really weird. And I started listening to people talking in line at the grocery store, in the drugstore. And it's interesting. Everyone's talking about this funky weather. And I heard one woman say yesterday, you know, I just can't get on with my life. I just went and saw a Broadway show this weekend. But, but, so but, I thought, but, but, huh. but what does that mean, though? How do you translate that? I mean, what does that mean? So I went to see yeah. a Broadway show. Why not come and buy an apartment? Because right? I think she was just checking out. <laughs> Buying an apartment is too serious, <laughs> especially during the Depression. Broadway shows, movies, these things were yeah. escapes. Yeah. So that's what I was thinking. And I said, well, you know, that makes sense because that's what I did this Sunday because I had no business this Sunday. Wow. <laughs> I'm always tempted yeah. to go to a Broadway show, so yeah. I get that. I mean, it's it's perfectly fine for me. But I don't know. I just kind of watch things, and I'm a, I'm a deep thinker sometimes. And so I, I – and I've watched these markets go up and down and, 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 and flat for 14 years. Um, I'm hoping that we are not in a changing market, meaning that we're going to actually get to a buyer's market because that then changes the – completely changes the landscape of uh, how we transact business, sure. especially as a listing agent. So it's a little um, it's a little defeating to think sometimes, but we'll figure it out. You, know, you just reminded me of something else that um, Barbara Corcoran always says, there are three kinds of markets. There is a buyer's market, mm -hmm. a seller's market, and a transitional market. Yeah. And the tra transitional market is no one's market. Mm -hmm. So you're yes. saying, are we in the transitional market now? I think we are. I think we are. Because yeah. we were in a seller's market. Yeah, but I think we that's were kind for of a very long news. time. Yeah. yeah. I think and right now, now, in the last, for a while, it's a transitional market and everyone's kind of waiting. But last week, Rachel said that she had, I think she said she had a bidding war on, on one of her entry level price properties in Brooklyn. So, Clinton Hill, I think she said. Oh, yes. Clinton Hill. So yeah. there, are, there are, I guess, pockets of this city or, or price points that are still more active than others. Clearly, as I, I mentioned in the news items earlier this morning, that you know the the luxury glut or the change in the luxury market, the pricing on that on that very high end is clearly um, affected. So let's see where we go. Anyway, moving on. While potential buyers balk at dealing with interventionist co-op boards, hmm, nice way to describe <laughs> it, or the lack of converted uh, coveted amenities, the real problem with long unsold ultra luxury units seems simple. Uh, grossly inflated asking prices. Here we are, you know, on the heels of what we just talked about. How widespread is this problem, and does it affect all price points? You know, and are, are we in this transitional marketplace as you just indicated? Because, you know, uh, I think <clears throat> in some cases prices are still grossly, and I use the word grossly, inflated. <clears throat> Let me. I think I have a good example for this. So there's a deal that I'm currently working on, and I have a call. Hopefully, good news right after this. Um, it was Crossed fingers. Yeah, it was initially listed at one point one five, 
Um, I won't tell you anything about the location or anything about that, but you know, property's not, not property's not in the best shape. It needs a little TLC. Um, price was dropped to nine nine nine. I have wow. a buyer who can spend up to a million dollars. Took him to see this place. Actually, he had an incredible strategy. Um, he's like, "Look, we're gonna come in lower. Are you comfortable?" He's like, "Are you comfortable with submitting a low bid?" I said, "Yeah, let me talk to the broker." I said, "Look, hey, we're gonna be submitting a low bid. I don't want to offend anybody. You know, if we can come to a term, you know, to a deal at a lower number, it'll work." She's like, "Look, submit any offer that you want. I'll speak to the seller and we'll get you a good counter." We submitted an offer of eight hundred thousand. This is this talk about a transitional market. Eight hundred thousand. Then they come back at nine fifty. We say our counter to you is eight hundred thousand. They come back to us at nine hundred k. Think about this nine hundred k. Flashing back to two thousand eight. And then and then and then our counter is eight ten. Wow. They come down to eight uh, fifty. Think about this eight fifty. Yeah, it was a little, uh, it was listed at one point one. Wow. Okay, and now and now we we've put our best in 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 highest at eight twenty and said you have twenty four hours, yes or no, eight twenty, eight twenty final price, and, and you're waiting to hear on that. We're waiting to hear. She's like, you know, let me see what I could do, and it's it's not out of the question. I don't know if it's going to be a deal, but I mean, I didn't even think of of having that kind of strategy. In 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 what he was saying, my buyer was like, look, let's just wait it out every Monday after the open house. Let's say, hey. How did the open house go? We're still here. This is our number. And we did that. It was about three weeks. We had to wait it out. Very, a very slow, you know, maneuver and play. But, you know, let's see what happens right after this. It seems to me mm. that we have the potential of doing a deal here. This is what I was thinking about yeah. earlier. And then hearing this story, I mean, how do you dissect that? Other than, you know, uh, was the price way too high? Inflated price? Is the is the seller kind of desperate to move? Is this, uh, the buyer pretty smart and say, you know what? This is what it's worth based on his expert broker here. And that's all I'm going to pay. So this is when, you know, things start to change. Yes. Okay? And this is when you start seeing the market I, really and there's a, And to answer some of those questions, I think, a, the seller is motivated to get out of the city and start a family in New Jersey. So they're motivated. Uh, B, the place you know needs work. There's TLC needed. Yeah. Um, it, it is a duplex. So it, it duplexes down into a subterranean uh, level, uh-huh. um, which kind of, you know, turns, really, turns a lot of really people off. Some people don't footage. want exactly. stairs. That exactly. cuts out half your market. Exactly. Yeah, but it's not even square footage, really, in, in, in terms of you know pricing. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a couple oddities here, which, you know, yeah. allow us to kind of play this game, yeah. you know, considering the fact that the sellers also want to sell. But still... Just the fact that there's that kind of negotiability that I'm seeing is, uh, to me, a, a big shift. Uh, I, that's something that I personally experienced. I completely this agree with that. It's very telling. It's, it's like 2008 all over again, not to say it's going to be bad like that. I don't think it will. Well, this is what I'm hearing. But I hearing. saw a lot of that. And I think that's a perfect story for um, a transitional market. And I had something kind of on the flip side. We're talking about overpriced and all price points. In November, I started working with a buyer looking for a one-bedroom up to 650000 That's That's real low end. I'm thinking, okay, I'll be lucky if I could find five or six things to show her. I came up with 37. Then I said, wait a minute. You mentioned that a couple of weeks yeah, ago. That's I very did. interesting. It still blows my mind yeah. because the apartment directly above the one she wound up buying just came on the market at four ninety nine. We closed at five twenty five. This one's four ninety nine. dollars Ours was gut renovated. Mm. This one is original condition. This is a pre-war building. So original condition yeah. is very old. Yeah. And <laughs> I spoke with the broker because I had actually sent someone to go a buyer to go look at it. And the broker said, I was expecting lines out the door. I didn't get it. 
Hmm. This is this is a very interesting. Uh, I'm going to use your term again. Transitional situation that we're in. Anyway, moving on. When a Chinese buyer scooped up a 70 million dollar co-op at the Sherry Netherlands, the deal was the Herculean effort, and not just because the original asking price was 95 million. So it was asking 95, they paid 70 million. Nonetheless, 70 million for a co-op in Manhattan is groundbreaking. The March 2015 transaction marked the first time the co-op board, the co-op board of the iconic building on Fifth Avenue, allowed a foreign buyer to re- to join its ranks. Co-ops are historically known. Nobody outside of this country. While New York City's notoriously exclusive co-ops have been taking steps to increase their marketability for seven several years, whether it's adding gyms, renovating common spaces, and allowing foreign buyers is groundbreaking. Let me ask. So, do you see this becoming a trend in, uh, let's just say, co-ops in general around the city, most especially the the fancier ones on Fifth Avenue and uh, Central Park and or Park Avenue, foreign buyers in co-ops? Well, does it? I mean, this is groundbreaking. Obviously, a seventy million dollar transaction. But how? I mean, do you see this happening? I don't. I think it depends if if it if it appeals to the self interest of the folks on the co op board. So if the seventy million dollar price point or price tag increases the overall values mm-hmm. within the building, um, then then that's doable, right? Like the deal that I'm working on, you know, this is going to be at a lower price point, you know, than what other apartments have traded for in the building, and it might be a problem with the co op. They might be like, ah, you know, it's too low of a price, yeah. right? This, if it's a higher higher of a price, then the co-op board is saying, oh, okay, well, normally our, 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 our units trade at 1500 and this is 2000 a foot, albeit it's a, a foreigner, but let's do it because it'll, you know, the self-interest kicks in, and they're like, well, I think it'll help everybody. Well, I'm thinking, too, along the lines of that particular transaction, and this is a year ago already, and I, and I remember reading that. Listen, they're not condominiums, so they don't have, they can't offer the same things that a condo offers to buyers with flexibility and subleasing and, and yeah. amenities and all these things, especially some of these older pre-war buildings that are co-ops on the east and west side of town, even downtown. But they're also, they being the co-op boards, are looking at these prices saying, hey, listen, if the condo next door or around the corner can get X amount of dollar sure. per square foot, why yeah. can't we? Well, so you can't necessarily with domestic buyers maybe, but if there are foreign buyers coming in and wanting to spend this kind of money, I think they're crazy not to allow it because it's better for the building. But on the other hand, you know, it, it breaks all the other rules with pied-a-terre, with this, with that. I mean, you know, they're not buying foreigners to live in it permanently. So that really becomes another question. So what what are you turning this building into? You know? Well, my problem is really it all comes down to finances. And years and years ago when I was a paralegal, a real estate paralegal before I sold real estate, our company, our firm represented a building, the management of this building, a very well-known to us building on East 57th Street that sold at a, at a beautiful building, but sold to a lot of foreigners. There were some beautiful buildings on 57th. In the East recession, 57th. yes. During the recession of the early 90s, these guys all skipped town and they stopped paying maintenance. Well, there you go. And this is the real problem with foreigners. It's all financial. Mm -hmm. We spoke about fair housing earlier. It has nothing to do with where they're from or who they are or whatever. And co-ops do look into all of that. But it really comes down to finances. But here, you you know my favorite favorite term. I can't speak this morning. When we talk about co-op boards and 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 scrutiny undressing right so mm. how does a co-op board undress this 
foreign person for exactly what you just said. I mean, maybe they don't even have money in this country. So they come and they spend $70 million all cash. But, but, but you know, the coveted maintenance, if they skip town. That's yeah, right. I mean, do they make them keep that in escrow, escrow for a couple of years? But, or, you know, it, it could did, happen 10 years down the line. I'm thinking yeah. about the each individual case yeah. because this is a huge building. Yeah, it's risky. And there I were mean, over 25 right. foreign buyers. There, there must be over 200 apartments in this building. Sure. But there were over 25 foreign buyers in pricey apartments that just disappeared. And they stopped paying their maintenance. And this is one of the things that people don't understand. If you're having financial problems... What are you going to do? You're always going to pay your mortgage. You don't want to screw up your credit. You're going to pay sure. your credit card bills, whatever. But maintenance is paid to a private corporation. That's it right. does not show up on a credit report. That's right. So that's the last thing people pay, and it messes up a building. Mm-hmm. And if you have older board members who were around in the 90s when this happened, and probably in the early, or I'm sorry, late 2000s when this happened, um, they're going to talk amongst themselves and amongst all their friends who are active in other buildings. And and what are you guys doing? And what are you guys doing? Oh, did you hear what happened to this building? Mm-hmm. And did you hear? And I'll tell you about another one on 86th Street that during the recession, same thing happened. Mm-hmm. It wasn't foreign buyers, but it was domestic who didn't have the liquid. Well, again, we wow. talk about so, we talk about strong vetting yeah. on the co-op uh, co-op board side of buyers coming in, undressing them financially. These are the reasons why, because why. you know mm-hmm. you, they they we need to make sure that they can afford the apartment, but they can also afford paying the maintenance. And if something goes wrong and they they're out of work for six months, a year in some cases, uh, during tough times, they have the wherewithal or they have the savings. To continue making their maintenance payments because it does affect the rest of the building. If ten people in a building of you know sixty can't pay their maintenance for financial, you know, crisis reasons, what happens? Other people have to pitch in because yeah. the building has to still be run, and the and the the salaries and the staff in those buildings still have to be paid. So you know, it's a very big concern with co-ops, and that's a lot of reason why in our business we see people not really wanting to pay attention. To a co-op purchase, they would much prefer a condo, even though condo comes with a ten to twenty percent, you know, lift in price, typically, and sometimes even more. But that's just how it works. But let me ask you something because we have about a minute left to go to break. Um, in in your co-op ventures, Deborah, do you see um, do you see a lot of financial uh, concern? When, with what we just talked about, when you're out with buyers, do they ever say to you, "Hey, what happens if you know five people in the building can't pay their maintenance?" They never do. <laughs> they, do they even you know, think that? You know what? Their because mine, mine never do. Their parents do, depending how old the buy. If the buyers in their 30s or 40s, mm-hmm. and they're bringing their parents just to be respectful to look at it, yeah. The parents actually ask sometimes, but otherwise, never. They're never concerned. Why do you think that is? I think there was so much press during the recession or the end of the recession in mm-hmm. the financial pages, especially the Wall Street Journal, about how co-ops saved Manhattan. Yeah. Because foreclosure yeah. rates were only 2.7% at the height in Manhattan, and prices were really only only <laughs> down 37% during the height of the recession. That's not bad, actually. Which is really not it. bad, and it is the co-ops who undressed everyone financially yeah. to, who really saved us. All right, we got to go to break. You're listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel, live in New York City. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll free in North America at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back with Nile Lundgren from Compass. And Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential. Let's start with the brick underground um, choice, as we do every week. Mayor Bill de Blasio recently made some headlines when he proposed a new transportation alternative in New York City, a streetcar connecting Queens and Brooklyn that immediately got us fantasizing about alternative commutes that don't go underground, that is. So Brick Underground asked a group of New Yorkers, would you rather commute via streetcar or ferry like so many of our European friends do? So the question is, would you prefer a streetcar or a ferry as an alternative to, you know, the subway, the bus, to this, to that, the car, whatever, if you had a choice? You know, I don't know, but I have to tell you, I have taken the ferry from New Jersey to uh, Manhattan. Correct. Which is such a pleasant experience. I was trying it out because I was kind of— It's a great experience. I was tired of the George Washington Bridge. Mm -hmm. I was tired of the tolls being, Mm -hmm. if you don't have an easy pass, which is, for those of you out of town, a fast way of just zooming through and they charge you. Mm -hmm. It's electronic. Um, It's $15 one way on the George Washington Bridge now if you— Is that right? My God. Wow. Maybe it's 13. It's either 13 or 15. I don't know. I have an easy pass. But I left off at like 12. I have easy. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but it's whatever it is. So I said, well, let me try some other alternatives. So I took the ferry a couple times. The ferry ride itself across the Hudson, which is a very large river, is eight minutes, mm-hmm. which is quite nice. And they have these wonderful buses that go up all the mm-hmm. main avenues mm-hmm. that the problem was if you get sick in the middle of the day or you have to go home, well, they're not running. Yeah. <laughs> but... So that was nice, and the idea of a streetcar is nice. I don't think it makes much of a difference to me. How about well, you guys? Well, you have to choose one. Mm. I think I like the streetcar. Yeah, if it's I'm based, a streetcar type yeah. of guy, too. Yeah. And listen, you know, yeah. I'm a streetcar person as well. I mean, the ferry, I've done that, but I, I sort of think that you're limited, even though I've taken it multiple times when I was in my corporate career from Midtown, the high-speed ferry, down to Wall Street and, and whatever. And it's kind of fun, especially on yeah. those days. Yeah. But according to Brick Underground, the verdict says that New Yorkers desire a streetcar. So San Francisco, here we come. Okay. Well, and, I was thinking Boston, because that's a city that gets a lot more bad weather yeah. than we do, well, and they have it above ground. Yeah, well, so you know, I, I got to like tell that. you something. One of the things I think he's on to, this mayor, um, and, you know, whatever, is that this is going to be, I think it's going to take off. This is going to be a hit, and it's going to be something that like we're all going to kind of, yeah, I think so. So let's, let's check it out. Anyway, getting back to our apartment stop, a full-service building 
is a coat, a condop. So we're talking about a condop. So it's got rules that are closer to condo than co-op, namely no board interview required, and allowances for co-purchasers, uh, guarantors, and pied-a-terre. So are condops uh, that readily available in New York? And are they as popular as we might think that they are in New York? First of all, let's describe what a condop is. Well, there's a number of definitions for condops. Right. Uh, the basic definition is a co-op with condominium rules, meaning almost unleaded, unlimited subletting. Uh, you don't have a huge board package. Sometimes you just have to show a contract of sale. Uh, that's it. But legally, it is a co-op. That's the easy definition, and that's what most people think that they all are, but they're not. Another one is there were certain tax rules years ago, which I just don't remember, where if you have retail in a building, if you have a grocery store, a drugstore, all kinds of things, many co-ops to get tax benefits would turn each of those retail spaces into a condo and the entire residential uh, part of the building into another condo unit. Mm-hmm, so you yeah. might have eight condo units. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have unlimited subletting or something. It just is one big unit. And there's a third definition. Do you remember, Vince? I'm thinking. Yeah, I, I'm I, thinking also. I, I don't, actually. Um, I think most of them are one of the first two. Yeah. But I remember buying into a condop, one of my um, purchases way back in the early 2000s, I think. Um, it was a condop, and there wasn't retail in the building. Um, but I remember the process, because I had owned co-ops before, and I remember the process to buy a condo was simple. I mean, even easier. Delightful. Delightful. Yeah. Yeah. Even easier than a condo, <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. I mean, I just filled out an application, yeah. which was like a rental a application. Re- yeah. It was so simple. I didn't have to disclose all of the, you know, the typical things that co-ops ask for. Certainly a contract of sale, which was easy. Um, you know, and in those days, the price was in the the high fours, I think. So it wasn't, you know, a million-dollar purchase. But even so, I mean, it was a very big loft, and it was a very big uh, one-bedroom uh, loft apartment. And it was easy. And they also offered me, <laughs> because it was an empty apartment, the seller had moved out, which I found very bizarre, that I could move into the apartment before I even closed on it. And I thought, well, that's a little bizarre. And all you had to do was pay the seller, you know, rent, you know, for a month, I think it was. I said, no, 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 that's okay. I'd rather <laughs> wait and close on the unit. This was in the east, uh, Midtown East area. Beautiful, beautiful situation. But what I found in that building, though, was the maintenance. And the one, ultimately, the reason I sold it was because the maintenance, you know, I was a big shot then making, you know, decent money on, on uh, in, in technology, whatever. And I said, oh, so what, whatever. Maintenance, I think at the time was... $1,300 a month for a one-bedroom. By the time I finished in that apartment, which was a little over a year, it was almost up to $1,600. And, and for whatever reason— That's even high now. That's very high now. For a one-bedroom, that's So bedroom, what I'm talking about now. in the year 2000, yeah. I thought, are you out of your mind? And my broker kept trying uh-huh. to tell me, I don't know about this maintenance. I'm like, ah, don't worry about it. I, I can afford it every month. It is what it is. Well— we want customers like you. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, that wasn't such a great choice. Fortunately, I was able to get out of that and sell it, but that was my experience with a condop. Hmm. So, um, you know, easy in, but the maintenance was high for what I And I'm trying to remember back all those years ago why it was so high, but I can't at the moment. But anyway, moving on. Admittedly, real estate tax codes or tax codes in general aren't exactly known for uh, inciting passion, but in real estate cir- uh, circles, a code known as 1031 exchange isn't just well-known, it's downright beloved. 
So let's talk a little bit. We're going to do a whole show actually on this. We have a guest coming on in a couple of weeks to talk about 1031 exchanges. But why are they so beloved? And for the listening audience out there around the world who doesn't necessarily even know what a 1031 exchange is, let's kind of help them along with that. In a nutshell, a 1031 exchange refers to Section 1031 of the Internal Revenue Code. So what this allows you to do is if you sell a property— you could make what's called a like-kind exchange. If you're selling a boat, you could buy another boat. If you're Mm -hmm. selling a condo, you could buy another piece of property. By doing this, if you make a profit and you're going to be buying something at the same price or higher, you can defer the taxes that you pay until you sell your next property. The capital gains tax. Exactly. You're right. Thank you. The capital gains taxes. So... This is great for people who made huge profits. They have investment properties, and they're able to hold on to them. They just keep getting larger and larger yeah. investment properties. Yeah. It, it's quite a concept, and I remember when I first started in the business, of course, the 1031 uh, portion of the tax code existed, I'm sure, but it really wasn't so in fashion in New York City for whatever reason. Then all of a sudden, you know, and I'm in the business for 14 years, so all of a sudden it became such a big thing. And I used to work with so many people who – uh, participated in this program. I haven't worked with a 1031 exchange person in a long time. But there's also you know, some guidelines to that. In other words, you're saving on the capital gains by just transferring it to a new property and on and on and on and on until you're ready to retire, sell everything, and then pay your taxes at that moment in time. But there are timeframes that you've got to look and timeframes you know, that you have to buy. And I think you have to identify a property within 45 days and you've got to close on that property within 90 days. So sometimes it can be a little tricky from a timing perspective. There's also a number, but I don't remember what it is, of 180 days for something. I, because we were discussing right. this yesterday in the office. I don't remember what it's for, though, because I haven't done a 1031 in a few years. I haven't either, and I should have done that research yeah, for this program. But I, I <laughs> do know time. that it sometimes gets in the way and people can and often do lose opportunity because they go past the 45-day yeah. window, past the 90-day window, whatever it is, and they think, well, and, and I always say, of course, how hard could it be? I think, so, too, you got to understand that working with a 1031 exchange buyer is helpful in you know sellers' markets because they're able to come in and pay a pay pay the premium yeah. that the sellers are looking for, mm-hmm. um, you know, because that that premium that they might be paying is marginal compared to the tax that they would be paying yeah. if they sold on capital gains. So for them, it's like, okay, well, I'll defer my taxes, you know, trade up to a, a higher priced or valued asset, um, pay the seller a little bit more, but in the long term, they're going to be benefiting. Um, if they have a long long term view on it, because they're 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 not paying the taxes now, they're waiting until you know later on, and they could either ten thirty one up from there as well, and and you know do that throughout their their life, and mm-hmm. you know so it 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 works out you know considering the market. I know we're we've we've coined that we're in a transitional market right now, <laughs> but you know during the during the seller's market, the ten thirty one exchange is you know really important, and those are better valued buyers. Um, because they can actually pay that premium, they can, and they're more serious because they've got a time, you know, you know, thing that they're running against. And then the other thing that that can get a little more complicated is when they're trying to sell something and then buy something at the same time. If you meet up with them and say, "Well, I already sold my place, you know, and I need to buy a new place." That's one step out of two. It makes it a little easier for us. But um, when we get them more often than not as a seller and then a buyer, you know, 
I feel the stress of you know trying to find something, identify something within a certain window, and obviously to get that that uh, closed. Well, the hardest part of this is when people get emotionally attached. Mm-hmm. This is a tax. Uh, Oh, it's a tax transaction. So don't fall in love with the property that you want to buy. You want to save on taxes. Mm-hmm. If it works for you, it doesn't have to be perfect right now. Yeah, uh, It doesn't. Anyway, we're going to go to break. Uh, we are coming back. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, we are back for segment four and our last segment for the week. And I want to talk about real estate search sites. They've been around for years, letting users mine data on everything from percentages of singles in their neighborhood to uh, the year that buildings were constructed. But a new generation is offering home hunters a look at the kind of nitty-gritty demographic data that, in some cases, brokers are prohibited from discussing by federal discrimination laws, as we talked about at the top of the show, as the New York Times reported last week. So my question is, with so much neighborhood data out there and available to the consumer who is searching on all of these you know, array of sites, from school ratings to crime rates to percentage of singletons, is the apartment hunt getting easier or are we buried under too much data? And that's from the, the broker side, and that's from the, the consumer side. So I, I, I have my opinion, but I'm curious to know what you guys think. Uh, I mean, that's, that's something that's happening not just in real estate, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's, in, that's kind of across the board. I, I, it's I called think, the internet. Yeah, I think there was a stat, I think a friend of mine said, and this isn't necessarily credible because I heard it through a, a, a third party, but yeah, but he said that like a 70%, that he read that 70% of the internet was uh, regurgitated mm-hmm. or uh, you know copied information. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to find out what the actual sources are, right? And where the and who who who's saying this information and what is their agenda? Why is you know this site positioning the market as this? What's their agenda? Why is this one positioning it like this? And in what's their you know as, as you would go on CNN or Fox and say, okay, what's their agenda and why are they saying X, Y, or Z? Right? Um, if you really want the accurate information, I think it's important to look at like the government sites, you know. Um, 
you know, census information, uh, you know, ACRIS, for example, to give you accurate data. Exactly. Um, Which on, is the city website where all sales are recorded. Sure. So thank you, Deb. I appreciate that. Um, and, and other, you know, government, I guess, uh, or city sites that allow you to get the accurate information and then make your own decision from there. There, I mean, Vince, you're totally right. There's a million websites popping up every day. Data is at our fingertips. It's, <coughs> it's becoming more and more um, of something that we have to deal with because the consumers are, are so educated. So we have to educate ourselves on top of that, you know, be able to sift through it and find what is actually relevant and important. I mean, I, I asked the question because I feel like sometimes I date myself when I talk about I'm in the business 14 years, but clearly there are people in the business a lot longer than I have been. But I remember 14 years ago, starting out in this business, it was almost easier. Well, it was absolutely easier for us as of real estate professionals to educate our clients, professional to the consumer. Now, I feel like when you're out with buyers, when you first meet them for the first time, they have so much more information and they're guarded or armed rather with so much more information that I don't feel like I can be that expert that I want to be or that I know I already am. And then because of all this data that they have access to, they start asking questions about neighborhoods, about buildings, about whatever that we really can't answer because we're restricted with fair housing. So it's kind of like, yeah, they can find their own apartments. Yeah, they need our help anyway, but they have access to so much of this information. And and honestly, every time I turn around, there is really a new site yeah. and a new source of of information. I mean, finding out how many singles are in a neighborhood. I mean, well, how the hell do you do that? The census. <laughs> I mean, but, but it's online, like, though. Yeah. yeah. Is that going to make you find a date easier? Well, I mean, come uh, on now. I, I, I don't do, know. And, and do people make buying decisions based on that? I, well, I guess but they you know would. What? Yeah, that was a major, that was a major thing. Yeah. Wow. Well, we've all had buyers who, as Vince was just explaining, come armed with everything. But how much of that information is real? Yeah. How much of it is, is accurate? Because we well, all know there are national real estate sites that don't have accurate information. Mm-hmm. And, oh, but they have commercials on TV. They've got to be legitimate. No, no, no. They have wrong information. I'll tell you why it's wrong. Or just yesterday, I had a buyer of mine say, I found this on one of these national websites, and why can't you find it? And I said, it was sold two months ago. That's why. Well, that's the other thing, too. We 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 get saved sometimes because a lot of those sites aren't as updated as as they should be or as timely as they should be and we have up to the minute information not to mention the zestimates by the way or the, whatever those things are horrible. which are yes in manhattan i don't know about the rest every, of the country i've gone all over the every, rest of the country yeah, okay. looking at that company. way off they're worse they're worse <laughs> way off yeah. they're way off and people the, are like wow uh, this is what it, it tells me it's like no, whoa no, pump no. the brakes and they want to argue with, and they want to argue with you about that too yeah. by the way yeah. so the bottom line is you need to work with a broker and we have lots of experienced brokers in this town that you can call on anyway actually s3 Especially us. Yeah, one Riverside Park, a new luxury condo tower on Manhattan's Upper West Side. This is a very interesting story. It's actually kind of sad. A never lived in four bedroom apartment is available for rent at $22,995 a month, about $2,000 less than the owner, the original investor owner. Uh, was seeking in January, so it's March. It's still on the apartment. It's still on the market, and it's dropped by two thousand dollars on asking price. The twenty eight hundred thirty square foot dwelling with floor to ceiling windows and panoramic river views, Hutchin River views, uh, has competition for tenants. Now, this is where the story is, and it has competition for tenants. Why? Because forty five percent of the one hundred and sixty one units that sold in the building over the last year have been put on the uh, market for rent. This, according to Street Easy. 
Why does this happen? Wowie. Now, I, my partner and I have a, a client who we sold a, 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 a unit in the building, and she and I recently saw it. Oh, she was here on the radio show a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, the concern is that I buy a very expensive condominium in a very ultra-luxury building like 50 Riverside Boulevard with amenities that will, you know, knock you out of your shoes. 45% of the purchasers in that building were investors. So my first question is, how was that allowed? Because, again, as a former on-site sales agent in four buildings, I know offering plans only allow 10% or less of investors in buildings. I'm sure it's changed over the years, but 45% out of 161, you've got tremendous competition. There are so many listings on the market in that building. So the length of time on market is going to be extraordinary. But what is that going to do? My question, my real question is, what is that really going to do to the value of those already very expensive apartments when these investors or when some of these owners who bought to live in are going to sell? How is that going to change the the landscape of that building? And of course, no one knew this was happening because when I sold that building to my client, we had no idea that they were selling to so many investors. And that's a problem. And I just hope it doesn't start a trend because we hear things like uh, Gary Barnett and Extel is putting up a, a, a luxury tower, not even luxury, but a tower in the East Village and only selling to the Asian population because those are mostly the investors. Their housing? Well, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago on the yeah. show. It's a major fair housing issue, yeah. but they're exempt from that. We we can't, you know, do that, but but developers are exempt from that. So he gets away with it. But the point is, he's targeting investors with buildings like that. So, what is that going to do to the luxury market or these condominium buildings that people want to buy and live in? It's a problem. I think the main thing is that, you know, when you have more inventory on the market, so investors buying condos, and then they put them back on the market for rent. And you'll see that this, this apartment that you're talking about has been on the market for three months and there's, mm-hmm. there's been price drops. What that does is that hurts overall cap rates you know, for investors, and that's how they gauge if uh, you know, an investment is worthwhile. Obviously, you know, taking into account that you know, Manhattan apartments generally appreciate if you, if you buy it right. Um, but when, when that hurts cap rates, that, de- that de-incentivizes you know, investors from purchasing. Absolutely. So on one hand, the developers are like, oh, let's let's bring them in. So you get them in, but then they put them on the market, and then there's a glut of just empty apartments sitting there. And then that then hinders the ability to to bring more people because the cap rates are driven down, so is the pricing, because everything is, you know, what about, they're competing well, against each other. Wait, well, exactly. Yes. But what about this scenario? So the cap rates are coming down. The, the, the investor who thought he was going to get or she was going to get X dollar for their unit and now realize that they can't. And so what do you think that's going to do to the sale side of the thing? Are they going to get frustrated enough because they can't make numbers work because of cap rate decreasing? Do they think they're going to put it on the market for sale? Or how, how is that going to work out? I think it depends on the view of the individual investor. Um, some have a you know short term view, and they're like only you know they only care about getting it rented and seeing whatever cash flow that they can have. Some some are more uh, cash heavy, and they can hold on to it for longer periods of time, um, and then just wait for general infra- inflation and appreciation in Manhattan, and you know sell it or you know what have you. Um, you know it all depends on where they where they buy it, but I think it really depends on the individual uh, who purchases it. In their investment strategy. Yeah. You know, this is a building that I am really watching closely because, as I said, I do have a client who lives in the building. And I I don't think values are going to come down significantly. And, in fact, the the apartment that they purchased is already worth more because I think uh, Gary Barnett and Extel had that building for whatever reason 
under market priced when it was getting ready to be sold two years ago. So we got a good price for it. Uh, and I think there's still value in it. But I would be concerned, you know, as an owner in a building like this, that there are so many renters, and not that there's a problem with renters, but it is a condominium building, and even though they're very high-end rentals, it just changes the demographic a little I, bit. I think something, buildings. too, to keep in mind is, I, I don't know if you've seen this trend, but, you know, the condominium buildings that are, you know, hybrids, the mm-hmm. half rental, half mm-hmm. sales. Correct. Those well, are, the Alden right next door is one of those. Yeah, those, yeah. those are interesting mm-hmm. because, you know, for the investment, Investors who come in and purchase, and then they put it back on the market. There's mm-hmm. just so much competition because there's inherent, you know, inventory on the on the rental side. So you're competing against the rental portion of of your own building you that absolutely. generally is direct with management. It is no fee. You have to hire a broker. You know, so it's. It, it, absolutely. It, that that yeah. has to all be taken we into account, We unfortunately too. have to end on that note. I want to point out next week, Good Morning New York is celebrating its two years of shows on the air. That's a great accomplishment. Wow. And in a couple more weeks, we're going to be celebrating our 100th show. So that's Good Morning New York for today. Thanks for joining us. You can catch the show anytime on podcast or on our website, voiceamerica.com or vincerocco.com. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.